Thank you very much indeed, um, David. Thank you, David Garing, uh, for inviting me, uh, for welcoming me. Thank you all for coming, especially if you know me. Well done for showing up anyway. I hope you're uh, looking forward to um, a stimulating, well-informed, heartwarming, clearly argued paper. So am I, after lunch. It'll be fantastic. Now um, we, you have me. Uh, my brief is not to look at all the exciting things that uh, you think about when Noah pops into your head, but to look at Noah in Genesis, to look at the flood narrative uh, in its own terms. And let me begin by telling you what I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about historicity, because I believe that faith in historicity, apart from good works, is dead. I think that... Uh, Every minute we spend talking about whether this happened is a minute we're not talking about what the text says. And I don't think it's enough merely to believe that it happened. I think we then need to ask, okay, so what does Genesis, what does Moses say to us? Um, when the serpent comes to Eve in the garden, he isn't trying to put an idea in Eve's head when he asks, did God really say? He's trying to put fruit in her stomach. So let me ask you, who do you imagine is the most influential among the new atheists? Now, I think there is one who every one of his books has probably been read by more people than all of the other books by the new atheists put together. And I'm sure in your church, there are loads of people who've read him, enjoyed him. He's called Terry Pratchett. And he uses the wonderful medium of the novel uh, to sell you his philosophy. Here he is describing, in a parallel universe, using different names, the Protestant missionary. And it goes like this. It was because he was so very good at old languages that he'd been allowed to study in the new libraries that were springing up around the citadel. And this had been fresh ground for worry because the seeker after truth had found truths instead. The third journey of the prophet Senna, for example, seemed remarkably like a retranslation of the Testament of Sand in the Laotian Book of the Whole. On one shelf alone, he found 43 remarkably similar accounts of a great flood. And in every single one of them, a man very much like Bishop Horn had saved the elect of mankind by building a magical boat. Details varied, of course. Sometimes the boat was made of wood, sometimes of banana leaves. Sometimes the news of emerging dry land was brought by a swan, sometimes by an iguana. Of course, these stories in the chronicles of other religions were mere folk tales and myth, while the voyage detailed in the book of Kenna was holy truth. But nevertheless, do you see the genius of Pratchett? He doesn't engage the text. He doesn't argue with the text. He makes the text ridiculous before you even look at it. And so what I don't want to do is spend time arguing about the text. I want to spend our time in it. Very happy to take questions. Very happy for discussion about that later. But first, um, I'm going to assume the historical truth of a global flood in a text that carries the label breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And I want to ask, what does this text teach us? How might our earliest history even correct us or reprove us? How might it train us in righteousness? So here's where we're going to go. These headings match uh, the handout that I hope you got. If not, don't be at all embarrassed to um, wander back and grab one or just follow along with me. That's fine. First, we're going to look at uh, creation, the fall and the outfall of the fall. We're then going to see what caused the flood um, which is firstly that creation ruined itself and secondly that God remains steadfastly committed to creation and therefore sends a flood. He calls Noah a new Adam for a new world and Noah's new world is the foundation for all future salvation. Now how might the text uh, correct us. I'm going to suggest some ways that it's corrected me as we go through, beginning um, with this one, which is that the concrete details of the text 
matter. And that's why under heading two, I'm going to look at the context. I'm going to spend a good chunk of time in Genesis 1 to 5 because we overlook the detail of this text that has become a battleground. And I don't think it's enough for responsible exegesis to have a Bible overview in our head. We're going to see that the details of Genesis 1 to 5 are vital for understanding Noah and the details in Noah are vital for understanding the rest of the Bible. So, how did God create the world? You may be familiar with the scheme that the six days can be split into two sets of three. On the left-hand side, the first three days, God separates things in order to create regions. And in the second three days, he fills each of those regions. So, day one, he separates light from darkness to create the day and the night. Day four, matching that, he fills the day with the sun and the night with the moon and the stars. Day two, he separates the waters above and below to make the sky and the sea. And then on day five, let there be fish to fill the sea, birds to fill the sky. Now God addresses the fish directly and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the seas. So we know how they're going to fill. They're going to do it themselves under God's orders. Of the birds, God just says, let birds multiply on the earth. We don't know yet how that's going to happen. On day three, the waters below, he separates those and produces dry land with vegetation. Let there be vegetation. We don't know how yet. It's just there. And then on day six, he fills that dry ground. Again, by saying, let the earth bring forth animals. We don't know how. Not yet. And he addresses man. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. So that's how the land is going to be filled with people. Man himself is going to do it by multiplying. How does this work itself out as you read on into Genesis 2? Well, it begins with God planting a garden. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So we're supposed to feed ourselves from that garden that God begins there, while we go on to work the ground to grow plants to make more food. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. No plants because no man yet. It's man's job to create the plants for food. And then our job is to feed ourselves and the animals and the birds. Genesis 1, dominion works like this. And God blessed them, I'm at verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I have given you every plant. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, I have given every green plant for food. So God tells us to multiply ourselves and to multiply the animals. That is what it means for us to be God's blessed image. To be self-multiplying cattle farmers who work the ground to make food. We feed the birds and the birds get on and multiply. We know not how. We feed ourselves and we feed the animals. So we multiply ourselves and feed the animals. That's what it means to be told to go and fill the earth and subdue it. And you can see this emphasis on land, food, family, multiplication, and cattle, right the way through the plot of Genesis. Look at the end of Genesis. You end with Israel owning the land of Goshen, with Joseph um, having been promised the land of Canaan. Joseph is in charge of all the food in the whole of Egypt. Abraham has seven generations, and Israel is already up to 70 descendants. 
And what are they all doing? They are cattle farmers. That's how they get the land of Goshen. The Egyptians detest cattle farmers, get out of us, have this good land. You know it's going to go wrong in Egypt if the Egyptians detest cattle farmers because that is God's image. Sure enough. A new pharaoh comes along and notices that these cattle farmers are multiplying and we don't like them. Cue the Exodus. Are you with me? God made the world so that people would fill the land with ourselves and with the animals by growing food from the ground and we will see that that is exactly what God called Noah for. And each of those relationships is affected by the fall. In fact, it's a reversal of that relationship that begins the fall. Man feed the animals, but it's a serpent who feeds Eve. We're undone already. Um, what do you think Genesis 3 is about? This is what I mean by concrete details. Yes, it's about sin. Yes, it's about the fall. What's the most common word in the passage? I'm not expecting you to speed read the Hebrew. I've highlighted every occurrence of the verb to eat, akal. It's the most common word in the passage. That's what we're dealing with. Concrete fall involving food. The man on the ground are cursed, so it's hard to grow food. That's why we need Jesus to be the bread of life. That's why he's always having meals with people in the Gospels. That's why Isaiah invites us to come and eat without money or price. That's why we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, because that's how the Bible begins. That's the issue. Next, the woman and labor. So it becomes hard to multiply, hard to make uh, more people. And that's why it's appropriate for Jesus to stand there in Hebrews 2 and say, behold, I am the children God has given me. And the serpent and man we're meant to multiply the animals and feed them, and the serpent is told from here on in, you're going to eat dust. A man is going to kill you. And so it's no surprise to find that Jesus appears as the good shepherd, that that is a good metaphor for kings in the ancient Near East, in the Bible, and for our king. A reversal of the fall. Now, God's grace, when it intervenes, doesn't just call Adam and Eve back, it divides, it causes enmity between two seeds, the seed of the serpent, those who follow the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And that war between the seeds is a blessing, because it means that not everybody is a seed of the serpent. Some are seeds of the righteous humanity. Sin means that grace becomes messy. Enmity, war, hatred between these seeds is to preserve those who are in favour of life. The deaths of the flood are for the sake of human life. The death penalty after the flood is to preserve human life. Jesus came that we may have life and promptly died. Grace is messy. Just think about excommunication is grace. How does it work? Kick him out so that he may truly come in. Because of sin, the grace becomes paradoxical and messy. How does this grace work itself out, these two seeds, so that you end up um, with a global flood? Well, um, we have, um, read with me chapter 4, verse 2. Now, Abel um, was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. You see, we're still in that concrete detail of farming. They look like a perfect team working together, but mm, Cain kills Abel. Cain sins. And so Cain and his line in chapter 4 are marked all the way through by violence, by murder, by the very opposite of fruitfulness, of multiplication. Their bumper sticker when they drive around reads, make war, not love. Verse 14, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is so murderous that he cannot imagine anybody else not being a murderer. Cain doesn't see people as life-giving. And so the end of his genealogy, you meet Lamech who says to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, 
Then Lamech is 70 sevenfold. And then you transition into the new genealogy of chapter 5 of the line of Seth. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For, he, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. An offspring instead of Abel, the righteous seed of Eve, not instead of Cain, the unrighteous seed of the serpent. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So through the new seed of Eve, godliness has re-entered the world. And so you have the line of Seth, um, who are in the image of God, who are creators, who are marked out by fruitfulness. Back in chapter 1, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now here I've got every example of image and likeness in the first eight chapters of Genesis. Next verse, in his own image, in the image of God he created him, neither reappears until chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Going back to before Cain. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, as God had made Adam, and named him Seth. It is Seth who is the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. Seth is a son of God in his likeness, not a son of man in the likeness of the serpent. And so the evidence that chapter 4 and chapter 5 are presenting you those two lines of ungodliness and godliness, all the way through, it's given in terms of that mandate to Adam. It works like this. Both lines begin with, Seth calls on the name of the Lord. Cain's line, when Cain builds a city, he names it after his son. They glorify their own name, godliness, ungodliness. Where do you see the concern for multiplying? All the way through chapter 5, there are lots of sons and daughters in every generation. They're just not mentioned, they're blanked in Genesis 4. Instead, you get revenge and fear and murder, both with Cain at the beginning and Lamech at the end. The seventh person in each line is spectacular. Seth's line is Enoch, who doesn't even die. He does walk with God. He does have sons and daughters. The seventh of Cain's line is Lamech, whom we've already seen. How do each line end? Well, Cain's line ends with Lamech, paranoid murderer. Seth's line ends with another Lamech, to make the contrast who is concerned for working the ground. He calls a son, Noah, from the Hebrew verb to rest, because he wants rest from the curse on the ground. You with me so far? God made the world so that people would fill it. And after the fall, God graciously created enmity between a line that is committed to God's purpose of filling the world, and a line of those who are against God's purpose. So, how does the flood come about then? Well, if you're in Seth's line, and you're looking for a wife, where do you go? Um, Seth's line, who are godly, or Cain's line, who are godless? Do you go to Seth's line, who are good at multiplying, or Cain's line, who are good at killing? Seth's line, who live long lives, were given their dates, excuse me, or Cain's line, we're not told how long they lived, but we know they're killing each other. Seth's line, which has a long genealogy, 10 generations, 32 verses of the text. Cain's line, short genealogy, 7 generations, a mere 6 verses. Seth's line, every generation, mention of women available. Cain's line, women aren't mentioned. Where do you go? Verse 2 of chapter 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. It's perverse. It's a destruction of God's grace to Eve which had separated the two seeds. It's a spitting out of the gospel which they had tasted. Seeing something is good and taking it is what Eve had done had done in the garden, it's what they're doing uh, here. So, that then is your cause of the flood, which we'll see 
works itself out like this. First, intermarriage has rejected God's grace. Secondly, intermarriage fills the earth with violence. What happens if you take a line of people who are really good at multiplying and breed them with a line of people who are really good at killing? You get a lot of people who are very good at killing. You fill the earth with violence. So Genesis 6 Verse 4 reads, the Nephilim, that is the fallen ones, that's what it means, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men. No, it's the warriors. Giborim, a word we'll come back to later. These were the warriors who were of old. The men of renown. Men who don't call on the name of the Lord. They've got their own name to be concerned about. God's aim was fruitfulness, and reproduction, filling with people, violence does the opposite. It removes people. Verse 11, do you see it there? The earth was filled with violence. But God remains committed to filling the earth with people. Verse 12, and God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. God sees where all flesh is heading. Self-destruction. So he speeds that process up through judgment. It's a judgment that fits. You were busy killing everybody, so I'm going to kill everybody. You were busy undoing my creational purpose, so I'm going to put an end to this creational purpose. God is the one who has not changed. He is the one who remains steadfast to filling the earth with righteous people. And it works specifically through God's spirit no longer upholding the land. Do you remember in Genesis 1, the spirit is hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation. Um, That includes producing the land as the dry ground where man can work and multiply. Verse 3 of chapter 6, my spirit shall no longer abide, I think that should be with or among, man forever for he is flesh and so you get this announcement 120 years and then it's curtains for humanity the flood the spirit departs and lets the waters come back in and undo creation take over the dry land with the result in 7 verse 4 that all that stands that I have made from the surface of the earth I will blot out from the face of the ground God had made it and God then went ahead and unmade it matching the way he'd made it day one of Genesis God had created the separation of night and day during the flood night and day you get rain is it night or is it day I don't know it's raining day two the waters above had been separated from the water below 7-11 On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. That separation is gone. Day three, the land was separated up out of the water. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Just pause and notice verse 11. See Noah's age in how much detail it's given. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. Why are we told that? How do you feel reading that? Look how much life has been lived. Look for how long people have been marrying and giving in marriage. Look at the waste. But look also how long God has preserved Noah and his family in a world that is full of murder it's like walking through New York City and he's made it look at the time that they had had to suffer amidst murderers see we know we're used to saying that the fact that judgment is not yet is God's mercy for the sinner and that is true we also need to remember that when judgment comes it's God's mercy for the sinned against The world doesn't want a vengeful God. I didn't hear people saying that at 9-11. 
The world doesn't want a just God who believes in retribution. They just want to bomb Syria and send drone strikes against the Taliban. Judgment and wrath is good news for the victims of sin. Justice is good news for those who are living under injustice. And it cashes out like that with Noah, verse 12. Do you see how Noah and the rest of them enter salvation right before judgment begins? They're not caught up in it at all, not one drop of rain onto them. And look at the exhaustive list we're given in this paragraph. Verse 14, every person is named. The tiniest winged creature is mentioned. No one was left behind when God's judgment saved them. And what is the climax? Verse 18. The waters triumphed. Gabar. Same verb from which you had got the giborim, the mighty men, in 6 verse 4. That's why I'm telling you they're warriors. And all through this paragraph, again and again and again, you get the same verb. The waters made war against the land. Man had produced these warriors who had filled the earth with violence, and so God sent his own warrior, the flood, to wash them away. It was the waters that multiplied, we're told here, greatly on the earth instead of man who had chosen not to. Still with me? God made the world so that people would fill it. God remains throughout steadfastly committed to filling the world with righteous people. And therefore, he sent a flood and he called Noah. Noah, who is the new Adam for the new world. We're going to see that Noah is obedient to Adam's mandate and that's why he is righteous and useful. Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. 7.1 For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Let's be clear, we're not dealing with sinless perfection here. We seldom are in the Bible. We're dealing with comparative righteousness. Noah because he walks with God, does not walk like the world. And because God is steadfastly committed to Adam's mandate, he has to choose somebody who is also committed to Adam's mandate. He chooses someone who, uh, one, is a family man. We're told three times that he had sons. He chooses somebody who is not a murderer. When the death sentence is announced against all murderers in chapter 9, Noah is not executed. He chooses a man who cares for the ground. In chapter 9, he's called a man of the ground. He goes on and plants a vineyard. He's making food from the ground. Do you see, the very existence of Noah is God's promise to Eve of a seed in her likeness, in God's likeness. A creator, not a destroyer. And Noah is entrusted with a seed of creation according to the mandate um, with Adam. Come with me to 6 and 19. Do you notice how the manifest of the ark matches the mandate uh, with Adam? It contains the seeds for remaking people and animals with particular emphasis on the land animals. Noah is told um, 7 verse 2 and 3 to take in birds male and female but he's told to take in animals, man and his wife, or male and his mate. Do you remember in Genesis 1? Feed the birds, but let them multiply. It's not your problem. Feed the animals and make them multiply. Okay, so as far as the birds is concerned, he's got a Philip Jensen approach to marriage. He describes any male and any female, puts them together, and he knows that they will multiply. But he knows that this bull goes with this cow because I'm their breeder. And so I'm putting this couple on the ark. Do you see, this is Adam's mandate. Continues in detail. No fish on the ark. Because in Genesis 1, they're told to take care of themselves and carry on uh, multiplying. Just birds and animals and people who are to multiply. No plants 
Plants as food, but not plants to multiply. There's no mention in 6.21 of sowing crops or of preserving plants. God will do that, as we will see. And then the mandate with Adam is renewed um, with Noah. Don't be scared by this Hebrew. You don't need to read it. Just notice, even if you know no Hebrew whatsoever, that all the bits in black are identical down to the very letter. The grey bits are God's name, which have just been moved around a little bit. The blue bits are the people being addressed. So God blessed them in Genesis 1.28, that is addressing mankind. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now in 9.1, when the seed of humanity has come out of the ark, he addresses Noah and his sons. That's the blue bit. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. No change uh, whatsoever till the second half of the verse. Where in Genesis 1, it was fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. In 9 verse 2, it's fill the earth and then, ah, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. Instead of dominion, victory. Instead of care, fear. Grace is messy because of sin because of the fall. We need to care for creation. Should we be green? That's like saying, should we be decent? Should we be decent chaps according to the world's standard of righteousness or according to the Bible's standard of righteousness? There will be a lot of overlap and a lot of disagreement. Should we be green and ecological and whatever? Yes, according to whatever the Bible says. Not according to the latest fad of the world. We can't buy into it wholesale except by huge coincidence, which I find implausible. It's messy grace. I learned on Saturday with my two boys that there used to be nine species of tiger, four are already extinct, the other five are scheduled to be extinct within 20 years, and I was being told this as though it were bad news. Man-eating tigers are on the way out. Well, it is bad news. But it's also good news. The enmity between man and beast is a a living, real-life illustration of the enmity between man, the seed of Eve, the seed of the serpent, man and beast. It's kind of like the food laws. How does God persuade Peter to evangelise the Gentiles? Eat what is unclean. Okay, you've lived this distinction for centuries, now unlive it. I've been dealing with a wasp's nest this last month in my house, and I've been wondering what are wasps going to be like in the new creation, but it's also been reminding me not to listen to Satan. That's what it's there for. I throw away the Ouija board when God gave me that wasp's nest. Now, even in Isaiah 65, famous passage, isn't it? The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, And then the beautiful image carries on, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Even in that picture of redemption, God still cares about the division between righteous and unrighteous, between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. Part of good news is that you will still hate evil. Now, dare I say that this mandate to Adam and to Noah is mission. You can't be too missional but we can get the mission wrong we can be too focused on one bit of our mission marriage children the nurture of the godly seed whom god desires is integral to our mission please don't leave home without it don't be missional without it i need to tell myself not to neglect my children for the sake of winning others. I need to fight the temptation to reduce my children to a tool that God has given me for reaching other people's children. And we have to teach the centrality of this vision for the good life to our young folk. Because if we don't, they're not going to pick it up from anywhere else. The idea of the obedient life of raising a family. Our young folk won't learn this on TV. There isn't a magazine on the racks at WH Smith's that will commend this vision. Any teacher who tries to sell them this at school is going to be committing a hate crime. 
They're supposed instead to be teaching them about sustainability, about overpopulation, about how to have sex with anyone you want without the unfortunate side effect that a baby might be produced. The Atrahasis epic against which Moses is polemicizing as God told him blesses mankind by saying, so there aren't too many of you. I'm going to make your women sterile. I'm going to give you a high infant mortality and I'm going to give you magical incantations through which you can become infertile. What does that remind you of? Isn't that the world in which we live? We need to teach that children are a blessing. We need to do it as we visit parents. We need to live like this in the sight of our young folk. We need to make sure that our youth workers are committed to this as God has enabled them in their own lives and that they're not just evangelists with pink hair and earrings or equivalent if your youth worker isn't a bloke. Can I suggest to you that old, godly women are among the most valuable teachers of the Bible that your congregation is likely to have? According to Titus chapter 2, older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. That is how young women in our churches, brainwashed by feminism, are to catch the vision for the godly good life through older women. If you don't have older godly women in your congregation, please find some. There is a supersessionism out there. It used to be populate the earth. Now, it's populate heaven. Before the fall, it was populate the earth. Now, because of the fall, it's populate heaven. Well, Noah was after the fall, folks. And he's told to populate the earth. God's whole project for creation and redemption rests on Noah's character as a family man committed to the mandate with Adam, he's a safe pair of hands in whom you can entrust the seed of creation. And if our definition of being missional means that we couldn't be bothered to look after the ark, we're in trouble. This is where we've got to. God recreated the world through Noah. What does Noah's new world look like? Well, it's a global foundation for all future salvation, for every future act and covenant and example uh, of grace. It is God who is again at work uh, creating, not Noah. So 8 verse 1. God sends, now you will know that as in Greek, so in Hebrew, ruach means both wind and spirit, so you can do interesting puns on it. He, he sends a wind over the waters to part them, alluding to the spirit in chapter 1 who parted the waters in the first place. In verse 2, God undoes the causes of the flood. Windows of the heavens close. Fountains of the deep close. Rain, stop. It's God doing it. In verse 4, the ark rested. Vatanach. It's the verb from which Lamech had named Noah. It's one of the puns on Noah's name that you get uh, through this narrative. But the earth isn't ready for rest when the ark rested. And you see that in verses 6 to 12 where you get a raven sent out and then doves are sent out. And in verse 9, the dove doesn't find a what? A resting place for her feet. Manoach, again a pun on Noah's name from the same verb, not even a pun. How do you know when the earth is ready? Well, the dove comes back with what in its beak? An olive branch. Where do you get olive branches? On a tree. God has again planted trees. He's begun, he's carried on doing what he did in Genesis 1 and 2. So the world is ready for man and beast again. The spirit is creating again. Let me show you um, a little theme in Noah that runs from the beginning to the end uh, of the Bible. Uh, the spirit of creation, as we've seen, hovers over the waters, parts the waters, you create the land. The spirit we had seen remained 120 years among people on the land to contain the flood and when he goes, the waters close in. The spirit wind now removes the flood, parting the waters. At the exodus, 
the plagues are breaking down those barriers. And so you get water creatures onto the land, you get the night darkness invading into the day. And when the Egyptians, when, the, uh, when Moses leaves, it's a spirit wind that parts the Red Sea. The glory cloud with the Lord, perhaps the spirit in it, keeps the waters apart until Moses has gone through. The spirit leaves, the waters close over in judgment again. In Joshua 3, it's the Ark of the Covenant where the Lord sits enthroned, perhaps the Spirit, that causes the waters of the Jordan to pile up and Israel enters the land on dry ground. And I'm going to pick up that theme again later. The Spirit is recreating. He's doing it because of a propitiatory uh, sacrifice. Uh, Again, please don't be uh, nervous. I'm not expecting you to read this at any speed uh, whatsoever. This is 6 verse 5 where God sees the wickedness of man. This is 8.21 where he promises never to send a flood again. Um, Now the blue bit on the bottom, um, that the inclination of the heart of man was evil. So, um, and those blue words are reused from 6.5 to make the illusion. Now what God sees after the flood is worse than before. Before the flood, he sees that the evil of man's heart has become wicked over time. In 8.21, he realises the wickedness of man's heart is evil by default from youth. So obviously, he's going to send a flood again, right? No. Has God changed? No. 6.5, another pun on Noah's name. That's the verb for God regrets that he ever made man. Here in 8.21, again, your red word there, Hanichoach, Noah has offered the sacrifice which God smells, and it's a particular aroma. So the brown word there, Reach, is an aroma which pacifies God, which soothes God. It's Noah's name. It makes God rest. The difference isn't the flood. It hasn't changed anything. It's this resting aroma. And all the way through Leviticus where it's fashionable now to say that um, God's wrath is not averted by a sacrifice, well, whenever you see a sacrifice, you're seeing this phrase, which has averted every future flood judgment. This is a penal, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice, and it's really nice to be in a room where you could be considered hip for believing that. Man is still wicked, but God responds not to our righteousness. It's as though he's responding to some alien righteousness that is cloaking us and covering us that's causing him to respond to us because of the penal, substitutionary death of others. Now in 9.28, Noah lived 350 years and then he died. He does die, this is not full salvation, this is not consummated salvation, but 350 years is almost three times the 120 years that you would expect between flood cycles. Noah has had two and almost three goes to know that God means it. No more flooding. Noah's covenant gives the world the respite that we need for Abraham's project to get going. And after this global flood, every future judgment is merciful. The conquest of Canaan was merciful compared to the flood. I was at an evangelical Old Testament conference um, a month ago, and it's becoming incredibly fashionable now to have papers where we play down what really happened in Canaan. And eventually, Gordon Wenham stood up and said, Genesis teaches a global judgment through... I'm sorry, I can't emulate Gordon's graciousness and gentleness. You'll have to insert that. So why are we being squeamish about Canaan? Don't we get it? And so it's no surprise that after years of people playing down the historicity, sorry, I've gone there, of Noah, now they're playing down the historicity of Canaan. Because if we can't cope with a history that has already shown us God's judgment, we can't cope with judgment. The exile was merciful after the flood. AD 70, the Jewish war, these were merciful after the flood. The great fire of London after the great ejection was merciful compared to the flood. The flood which allowed, after this propitiatory sacrifice, a permanent, global, worldwide mandate. So, 
Um, sorry again about the Hebrew. Uh, don't worry. 6.17, the green bit, God says, um, but I'm about to send the flood. Now, that green syntax there is, is what you use if you're really about to do something. It's not some future promise, I'm about to do it. It's made particularly emphatic. You can look this up in the standard grammars. And what's about to happen is I'm sending the flood. And then, sorry, a vekatal T form with the accent on the end, which is what you use after this urgent participial form to tell you what will happen next. Before the flood, God says, I'm about to send a flood and then I will establish a covenant. Chapter 9. After the flood, God then uses that same syntax. I'm about to right now and then picks up the verb of establish. Establish my covenant with you. It's the same covenant. Promised before the flood, it happens immediately after the flood as promised. And then, um, well, we're going to hear more about covenants from Gary. But notice that this covenant with Noah, when God is standing there, outside the ark with the new humanity in front of him, makes it with, not just with Noah, but with you, plural, all of you who are here, and your seed after you, which is what you need if this covenant is to allow future mission. It's no good if it runs out after two generations and then you get 120 years under flood. Okay, that's why it's restated in those ways. And so straight away you're into mission. Verse 18. You're setting up the next stage of redemptive history by explaining why there's a curse on Canaan. So if you're Moses, this nobody who's gone into the land of Goshen and is trying to persuade the Israelites to follow me and get out of Egypt and come into where? Into Canaan. It makes sense that you include this bit of history to persuade them with your new trap that you're circulating to get out of there. But also, it shows us that the Mosaic covenant is the working out of the covenant with Adam and Noah in the land of Canaan just as the Abrahamic covenant is the working out of the covenant with Adam and Noah in the whole world. And it's only possible because of Noah, because of the covenant that allows rest from future global judgment to interrupt the process. Genesis 1-11 to establishes a permanent universal mission field. But it doesn't make it a saved place yet. So the refilling of the whole world with violence because man's heart is still evil from youth means that the world is sort of as though flooded it's a murderous place you read through Genesis and life is cheap please say that you're my sister and not my wife because they're going to kill me for you twice, Abraham and Isaac we're going to kill our brother in a minute first let's sit down and have some food I'm feeling a bit, a bit peckish so the people need a safe, dry ground, metaphorically, from which to be a mission to this flooded world. And that's what Canaan is. And that's why the prophets of the exile pick up on that metaphorical language. They compare the nations that are going to come in and kill you to the raging seas. Isaiah does that. Jeremiah does it. Maybe a couple of the Psalms. It's always slightly harder to know what the reference is. And so that's why you get this exile. When Israel isn't enjoying the dry ground where they were meant to be righteous, as intended, well, it's not yours anymore, so let's flood it. So the spirit withdraws in Ezekiel. You come back with Ezra and Nehemiah, all this emphasis on the temple. Did you notice that the spirit never returns, or the glory cloud? God doesn't come back. God never returns to the land, ever, until some centuries later when an evangelist wrote that Jesus goes into the Jordan. And when he was baptised, immediately he went up out of the waters and the Spirit comes down on him in the shape of what? A dove. Coming to rest on him. It's Jesus who creates the dry ground, the base for missions. It's in him that we can live. It's in him that we can be blessed. It's in him that we can be obedient. It's from him that we can reach out and win the world. And that's why when the final new, renewed creation appears, it's like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and a new sea. Oh, no, what's happening? For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. We're done with the flood. 
Why? Because the dwelling of God is with man. God the Spirit is there to create dry ground. God himself will be with them. And when you have no more flood, you have no more death. Death shall be no more. So to conclude... Noah's flood, the flood narrative, doesn't tell a story of a false start. Your Bible overview, please, does not begin, God created man and that didn't work. Then he did something with Noah and that didn't work. It is a fresh start. It is a necessary foundation for all future life. It explains everything. Somebody has written that the theme of the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is the partial fulfilment of the promise to the patriarchs, which is kind of right, but not complete enough, because it forgets Genesis 1-11. to Genesis 1-11, to which is not primeval history, it's our history. It's the beginning of our history, without which you can't make sense of the New Testament. Let me lay down a challenge for you. Spend the next few months only reading Genesis 1-11. to When you're done with that boot camp, you'll never read the rest of the Bible the same way again. You'll never find Leviticus boring again. You'll never find the double instruction to build the tabernacle boring again. You'll see things in the Gospels that'll make you think, what are these painkillers I'm taking? If we start at Genesis 1, and we pay attention, for example, to Noah, then it becomes obvious that we are not supersessionists. That... Israel's place in the world history was only ever temporary, transitional. That Abraham himself was only ever part of a bigger picture, the picture of Noah, the picture of Adam. So Gordon Wenham writes, The call of Abraham is the answer to the problems of the world. He gets that from exegeting Genesis 1-11. to as did the Apostle Paul, Romans 4:13, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. See, we, the people of God, we are the seed promised to Eve. We are the image of God. We are the new humanity because we're in the new Noah. He's called Jesus. And so we discharge the mandate to Adam, the mandate to Noah, as we call unrighteous people to become righteous people, and as we multiply righteous people. And it's as we do that that we fulfil the promise to Abraham that through him the whole world would be blessed until that day that Habakkuk spoke of, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen.